When a man realizes he has no options left, he contemplates the unthinkable. And then we take a look at the story of a young woman known as Star Faithful. While she's become an icon in the true crime community, today we're going to take a look at the last letters she ever wrote and see if there's any clues that we can use to determine how to save a life. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I hope you guys are having tons of fun doing whatever you're doing. We got a jam-packed episode, so let's go ahead and get this bad boy started. First off, running into Dead Rabbit Radio Command. Everyone get on your feet and give it up for Bungo. Woohoo, yeah, wee! <laughs> He's all jumping on in. He's like, yeah, right, I'm here for my episode. Bungo, you are in here for your episode bungo recently sent me over his spotify wrapped notification it's showing how much he listened to dead rabbit radio over the year and for sending it to me as well as sharing it on your social media bungo you're going to be our captain our pilot this episode because that is a great way to get the word out about the show really really appreciate it if you guys can't support the show financially bungo's also a member of the patreon but if you guys can't support the show financially Help spread the word about Dead Rabbit Radio. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell everyone you know. Dead Rabbit Radio is your favorite paranormal show. There's another reason why I picked Bungo, because right now I have a a list. I have new Patreon. I have a bunch of people who donated money during the Thanksgiving live stream. However, this episode can get kind of depressing. And Bungo has the funniest name. So I figured if I at least keep mentioning Bungo... You guys might stick around. You guys might not shut off the podcast. And I'm going to say this. It's not necessarily a content warning or anything like that. This episode is a little intense. The first story, not so much. Um, but the second story, we are going to be reading and analyzing a real-life suicide note. So, <laughs> wow, Jason, that's... You said it was intense. I didn't know it was going to be... I found this suicide note online that was written back in like the 1920s, and I have never seen anything like it. So we'll be talking about that. That'll be the second story, though. So if you're like, if that's not your cup of tea, which it probably isn't for most people. First story, although it does also involve, although it also does involve suicide, or does it? Right? Well, well, well <laughs> you're like, no, I'm just shutting it off. I'm cool. It's Christmas time. Bungo, I'm going to go ahead and toss you the keys to the Jason Jalopy. It's wrapped up in festive Christmas lights. We're leaving behind the Dead Rabbit Radio. Drive us all the way out to Chicago. And we're not just driving back to the city of Chicago. We're also headed back in time. Hit that time travel button and send us back to the year 1927. Back in the year 1927, it's... Very, very cold Chicago day. Hope you guys are all bundled up. Hope you guys brought your mittens and your Chicago weather appropriate gear. If not, you will probably die die during this segment. It's 1927, and we see this guy. He's kind of walking around the city of Chicago. He looks really bummed out. That's probably, I'm probably putting it pretty easy. He's actually on his last leg. He's ready to give it up. We're about to meet this guy. His name is Buckminster. Buckminster 
is this dude, he's walking around Chicago, 1927, and he's like, dude, life sucks. It's too much. It's just way, way too much for me. He's walking around the city of Chicago. He goes, I don't know what to do. Now, Buckminster, his full name is Buckminster Fuller. He was born in 1895. And as a kid, is an interesting character. Some of you guys are like, oh, he's doing the he's doing the famous Buckminster story. Finally, I was wondering when he was going to cover this. Buckminster was an inventor as a child when he was a little boy. I think he was like 12. He's like, rowboats are so ineffective. Rowing in the water and getting the wet on my arms. I'm going to invent a new rowboat. It's not going to involve rowing. The the boat still is included. He doesn't have scuba suit or anything. He invented this thing where you you took an inverted umbrella and you attached it to the back somehow. And he's, like, showing it off to his parents. He's like, mother, father, look at this new boat I've invented. I call it the Brella Boat. He didn't actually call it that. That would be a cool name, though. It was an inverted umbrella that used a push-pull mechanism. So, basically, the inverted umbrella would, like, do something, and the boat would move forward, and then it would do the opposite of that. It would push it, would push it, and then it would pull it. And the boat's going through the water, and people are like, yay, Buckminster, Buckminster, yay. You did it, Bucky. And he's all proud. I didn't know who this dude was. I stumbled across this guy randomly on the internet. I don't remember what brought me into his sphere. Get it? Get it? You're like, no, I don't know who you're talking about. Just finish the story, Jason. Anyways, okay. So Buckminster Fuller, he started off, he was a smart kid. He was inventing all this stuff. He eventually got into Harvard. Here's a very Jason-esque thing. He got kicked out. He got kicked out of Harvard in a great way. If you're going to get kicked get kicked out of Harvard, he apparently didn't work. He was lazy. He was constantly goofing off. And at one point, I didn't even know you could get expelled for this, but he got expelled from Harvard for spending all of his money partying with a traveling troubadour group. So I guess a bunch of people showed up with like leers and there's bards there wearing the puffy pants and they're like, tell me a story about a man named Buck. And he's like, this is fantastic. I'm going to buy all of you drinks. And he partied so hard, Harvard kicked him out. He was the original Van Wilder. But just like Van Wilder, he came back for a sequel. Harvard let him back in. He got kicked out again for being a misfit. He wasn't fitting in. He was being irresponsible. Then at this point, he kind of bounces around life, like a lot of us do, right? Sometimes we'll find someone, and they're like a pivotal figure in history or just in art. Maybe they're your favorite musician, and you'll find out they did all these different things leading up to that. He worked in a meatpacking plant for a while. He ended up signing up for the Navy during World War I. He's like, oh, these battleships are great, but (laughs) what's your biggest umbrella, sir? I can get us over there much quicker. And they're like, just just make the gumbo, dude. (laughs) Just go and do your job. Whatever. I think he was like a radio operator or something in World War One. He has all these different jobs. Now when he gets out of World War One, he ends up getting married to this woman named Anne. And it's time to start being an adult, right? He's like, okay, I already did the whole army thing. I invented all this stuff. None of it's really panning out. But I'm still like, and he's still inventing stuff on the side. But I got this wife now. I got to start thinking of my future. In 1922... You have Buckminster, you have his wife, Anne, and you have their three-year-old daughter, Alexandra. 
And she gets hit with a double whammy of old-timey diseases. She gets polio and spinal meningitis. Now, I know both of those are still around, but to get hit with... That's like, that is, like, that's when you think the universe is really, really trying to take the piss out of you. When your daughter has polio and spinal meningitis, and she dies. And it breaks the parent's heart, as it would, right? You lose a three-year-old daughter. Now, Buckminster, he's thinking, he goes, I think the fact that we lived in a really, really drafty house, because he was just working class. He has a Wikipedia article about him now, but back then he was just an average Joe. He goes, the fact that we're living in kind of this damp, drafty, dreary abode, I think that might have had something to do with my daughter's death. I'm going to invent a new type of house. Pretty grand, right? But you'd see a problem and you wouldn't want this to happen to anyone else. And his whole thing was trying to take resources that are already out of use. So it's like waste product from the production of something else. He'd go, how can I utilize that waste resource or that byproduct and turn it into an efficient, energy-saving, environment-saving type of invention? So he invented this thing. It was a co-invention. He invented it with someone else. But after Alexandra died, he invented this brick. It was like basically a wooden brick with these holes in it that you could fortify it. You can make them. It's not like the big bad wolf is going to knock it over. But it was like wood pulp. or It was just like this byproduct that were formed into these bricks. And uh, they started a company called Stockade Building. Stockade Building Incorporated, a stockade building company. And he goes, not only am we going to be successful and, we're honey, we're going to make all this money from this new invention, this new company. We're going to save lives and we're going to save the environment and all this stuff stockade building company they've invented this new kind of brick well that was in 1922 his daughter died he starts making this company in 1927 where we started the story out where he's kicking bricks around chicago not literally he's all throwing his prototypes into the into the water that business went out of business stockade building company ended up not being a success and that was his only job he bet everything on this company working out, and it didn't. So he's walking around Chicago. He has no job. They have no life savings. And Buckminster is the father of a new baby girl, Allegra. And he's like, oh my god, this sucks. Not my baby. My baby's adorable. and I love her. <laughs> love her with all my heart. But I don't know how we're going to get through. I do not know how we are going to survive. And he would walk around Chicago for hours on end just thinking, how am I going to make this work? Begins drinking heavily, walking through the city. 1927, autumn, he's walking around. He's walking by Lake Michigan and it dawns on him. He goes, oh, I just came up with the perfect plan. If I drown myself in Lake Michigan my family will get life insurance. Like, that's the only thing I can think of at this point. That is the only option for me. He's staring out over Lake Michigan, and he's thinking, this is it. This is what I have to do. There is no other way out. I've tried it. This is it. 
when he made that decision to kill himself. Fascinating. This is so such a weird story, okay? This is very well documented. Buckminster talked about this the rest of his life. He never shied away from this story. He goes, I had made the decision to kill myself, and then all of a sudden, I felt as if I was suspended several feet off the ground. And I was surrounded in a white sphere of light. And I heard a voice. I heard a voice that said, quote, From now on, you need never await a temporal attestation. Which means proof. I had to look that up. From now on, you never need await temporal attestation to your thought. You think the truth. You do not have the right to eliminate yourself. You do not belong to you. You belong to the universe. Your significance will remain forever obscure to you, but you may assume that you are fulfilling your role if you apply yourself to converting your experiences to the highest advantages of others. He's standing there now, looking out over Lake Michigan. And call it divine intervention, call it a spiritual awakening, call it regaining your zest for life. Buckminster said in that moment, he realized that this, whatever this was, was right. He did not have the right to exterminate himself. And he decided at that point to undertake an experiment. He was the experiment. He ended up calling himself a guinea pig later in life. He said that he was going to embark on a, quote, experiment to find what a single individual could contribute to changing the world and benefiting all humanity. And you're like, great, okay, that's cool, but doesn't he still have a newborn baby? Isn't this guy still super poor? Like, yes, you can have that moment. You can wake up and go, this is my goal. I need to do this. I'm going to be a pivotal point in helping all of humanity. And then... You hear a knock on the door and it's your boss. And he's like, dude, your break is up. Get out of the bathroom. Get back to work. Those burgers aren't going to cook themselves. And then you walk back out and you're flipping the burgers. He was still at the level of a burger flipper. Actually, he was even lower. He didn't have a job at all. But he took that energy from that force, whatever it was. And that was the kick in the pants he needed. And definitely it was the kick in the pants he needed to not kill himself that day. He goes, let's see what life has in store. Not just for me. Again, it wasn't like an ego thing, but for all humanity and the tiny part that I may play in uplifting the human species. It's a super fascinating story. So he does. He goes and gets a job. He goes and he gets a job, and it's basically like, I will decorate the interior of this cafe you pay me in meals. That's where he's at at this point. <laughs> They're like, hey, do you want a dollar? He's like, no, 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 I'm a, I'm a meal employee. And then on the side, he starts doing these informal lectures at the cafe and he just starts meeting the right people and he starts talking about, because he never lost that spirit of being an inventor. Yeah, although he did, he did think that was a kind of a goofy word. He didn't like the word inventor, but sure, it, you know, 
life and society had beat it out of him because he was making these inventions and he tried profiting off of them. And this particular one, the stockade one, didn't work. And it didn't work at the worst possible time when he had these children. He had one child and one had passed away and all of this stuff. So now he's like, I'm just going to go for it. And he goes from this guy who's standing on the side of Lake Michigan contemplating suicide to becoming... And this is the funny thing. When I was reading about him, everyone's like, he's a very, very famous man. He invented all this stuff. And I go, I don't know any of these things he invented. It's like reading the Wikipedia article of a character of a show I've never watched. I was like, what? But... If you're a if you're a big old nerd, if you love architecture or uh, science or, st- or all sorts of stuff, you know this guy. The whole time you're like, oh, he's gonna float around. <laughs> you're all checking your watch. He's like, oh, here comes a fire. He's floating. He invented this thing. He invented this thing called dimac dimaxian. Dimaxian, and it was this uh, basically these weirdly shaped products right i mean i guess they're all connected but he invented this car that is weird you're like jason i've never heard of this guy either are you sure that this guy did anything well yeah he did he invented this car called like the dimaxian car and it was just weird looking but it was weird looking for a purpose i don't remember (laughs) you couldn't really figure out what it was i'll be honest i'm reading this i was like yeah the car is weird but i guess it's more fuel efficient he also started really building these geo geodesic domes these big domes if you've ever driven through the woods if you've ever driven around and seen a dome shaped house you're like never i don't live on star trek he started designing these geodesic giant dome houses and dome buildings and i'm looking at all these photos and i was like what these are all over the place i mean sure it was an article about him and they're not going to show like a an old house an old spooky haunted house when he basically was like, let's build houses using this principle because this this sphere, you use less supplies and they're more energy efficient. They're probably easier to clean because you can just spray the walls with the hose and then all the dirt would fall down and maybe there's a gutter in them. There's all these benefits over an old house. Also, can, you, can one of these be haunted? He <laughs> yelled, can this be haunted house? And everyone's clapping. They're like, ghosts are scary. And he's like bowing. He started making all of these things. He... Eventually ended up um, having 20 patents to his name. He won the Presidential Medal of Freedom from Ronald Reagan. Basically, at a certain point as I was reading this, I'm like, it's just a list of stuff he's done. Going from the man standing on the edge of Lake Michigan to shaking Ronald Reagan's hand and being like, thank you. Thank you, your honor. And Reagan's like, no, thank you. Thank you, Buckminster, for building the dome Uh, He wrote over 30 books, 20 patents, Presidential Medal of Freedom. He popularized words such as Spaceship Earth. I've heard that. Um, And then other words such as Dimaxium. The other ones I can't even pronounce, and I'm reading this. Tensegrity. Uh, He popularized all these words. I was like, well, they're not popular. I've never heard of them. Are they in a Taylor Swift song? I don't know what he's talking about. He was the president of Mensa International for a period of time. And I want to say this, too, because a lot of people made fun of me when I told, was telling people I was a time leprechaun because I used to wear two watches so I can control people's perception of time around me. He wore three watches. So, again, 
who is, who's the real genius here? I was more efficient. I only needed two watches. He wore three watches because he traveled the world so much. It was different time zones. One he was working in, one where his wife was, like where his home was, and then the other one was where he was going. But, I mean, at a certain point, it's just a list of achievements. I could list them off, um, but that's just kind of a rundown. 30 books, 20 patents, all this stuff. Three watches. <laughs> the most important thing is, is he wore more than one watch, like myself. In 1982, he described himself as a guinea pig. And this is super interesting because this is what it comes down to. I don't know anything this guy did. Obviously, I've seen domes. I don't know if he built Epcot Center and nothing, but he was trying to change. He wanted people to take in these new ways of living. He goes, it's just more efficient. It's more efficient to do it this way. He described himself as, quote, uh, guinea pig B. I'm now close to 88. And I'm confident that the only thing important about me is that I am an average, healthy human. I am also a living case history of a thoroughly documented, half-century, search and research project designed to discover what, if anything, an unknown, moneyless individual with a dependent wife and a newborn child might be able to do effectively on behalf of all humanity. That could not, that could not be accomplished by great nations, great religions, or private enterprise, no matter how rich or how powerfully armed. That's awesome. That's a really, really cool quote because a lot of times we do feel powerless. Not just in the global scope of things, but just in our own lives. We feel powerless. And we're looking back on this guy and we can go, well, yeah, but you know, he, things just went his way. He did end up meeting the right people and giving these lectures and having these opportunities. And that has never happened to me. He, things just happened his way, but that never happened to me. It will never happen to me. We have hindsight on this. Every day he did not know if this was ever going to work out. He had already had a child who had passed away and a failed, a disastrously failed business. He had zero life savings after it. Each day he woke up, he did not know what the universe had in store for him, but he woke up every day. I thought this was a touching way to end this. July 1st, 1983 in Los Angeles, his wife, Anne, was dying of cancer. Uh, she was comatose. And Buckminster was sitting there holding her hand. He'd been visiting her. Always visiting her. Think of it, this man who's traveled around the world receiving Presidential Medal of Freedom, all of these things. In the end, the most important thing are those singular human bonds we make in this life. He's sitting next to his wife. He's holding her hand. And he tells people, he tells people, she's squeezing my hand. She's squeezing my hand. He's getting just one more moment that his wife is still alive and knows that he is next to her. And she's comatose, she's dying, but she squeezes his hand and he feels it and he goes, she's squeezing my hand. And then he stands up and has a massive heart attack. He dies in that same hospital an hour later. 
His wife, Anne, died 36 hours after that. That doesn't have anything to do with that doesn't have anything to do with anything else. I just thought that was sweet. Um, what a way to go, right? I mean, massive heart attacks not and then fun, but you know what I mean. You're there with your loved one. Before he died, he got to feel her hand, got to feel her touch, and her touch him back. Um, before he died. Fascinating story, the idea that you could have a man. And I think that is something a lot of us do get lost in. I think the idea of being powerless. Um, and you go, and I think you can go with Jason. This guy also was an inventor. He definitely did have a gift. Um, most people don't have a gift or a drive or something like that they can share with the world. And I would um, re. But that by saying, I think more people do have those gifts than they're even willing to admit to themselves. I think there's a lot more Buckminster Fullers out there. Fascinating. Fascinating character. Fascinating story. Has that weird supernatural possible alien interaction there in the middle. And again, he never shied away from telling that story. It was He was very open about it. And someone who's coming from the world of science to tell a story like that, I'm sure people scoffed at him. Water off a duck's back. Didn't care. Kept telling the story because it was true. Fascinating story. Bungo. I'm going to go ahead and toss you the keys to the carbon copter. Here's the point, ladies and gentlemen. I don't do this often. I very rarely give warnings, but we are actually going to be reading a suicide letter. And I've read manifestos of like mass shooters and terrorists. And I've even read suicide letters before and watched uh, suicide footage, not the people actually killing themselves. That does pop up from time to time, but footage of people giving their last remarks. I've watched that. I've read manifestos. I've never seen anything like this. This letter I'm about to read you really made me... Th this is very, very interesting because it is... It's tragic, right? Okay, so I, the reason why I'm saying all this stuff is that... You might not want to listen to this episode if you have suicidal ideation, the rest of it. I know the first one I talked about suicide. I don't give trigger warnings for just topics, but this one we're going to be talking. I'm going to be reading this letter, and I think if you are very, very sensitive, if you have suicidal ideation, I've never seen anything like this. It made me go, oh, I've never considered that when it comes to the last moments of somebody's life. And I was saying that almost every other sentence. I was like, I never thought of that. I never thought a suicidal person would think that way. I never thought they would write that down. So if you do suffer from suicidal ideation or self-harm, probably not a good idea to listen to the episode going forward. We will see you tomorrow. Um, to everybody, you're like, everybody else is like, nope, that was cool, Buckminster story i'm shutting it off i don't think i've ever really even done anything like this on the podcast before just reading a letter this harkens more back to the original podcast manifesto before dead rabbit radio but bungo i'm gonna go ahead and toss you the keys to the carpenter copter you have a funny name so you're our pilot we're leaving behind chicago fly us all the way out to long island <laughs> We're headed all the way out to Long Island. It's June 5th, 1931, Long Island, New York. We're walking along the beach and we see all these police officers standing there. Nothing to see you, ladies and gentlemen. Get out of here. Why don't you go back to your homes? You don't want to see nothing here. <laughs> it's a beautiful beach. What are you talking about? We're looking out 
at the Atlantic Ocean. Don't be looking over there at the Atlantic Ocean. Nah, get out of here. Get out of here, wise guys. We're like, ah, he's poking us in the belly with his billy club. But that makes us even more intriguing. Why are all these cops here? Why are they poking people? Why are they poking people with their billy clubs? We look over and we see a beautiful young woman laying on the beach. Dead. We're looking at the body of Star Faithful. 25 years old. Cause of death, drowning. But during the autopsy, they also find out she had a stomach full of barbiturates and bruises. Various bruises around her body. This story is... It's not a huge story in the true crime community. You do see it pop up from time to time. And the question settles on, did she commit suicide or was she murdered? This was a super sensational case at the time. The police very quickly said she drowned. She had taken all of these drugs. She drowned herself. But people were like, where did the bruises come from? That's the big question that you see in the true crime community now. Where did the bruises come from? And the police are like, probably when you're drowning, you're hitting rocks. and so It's not like nothing's ever, it's not like you jump in the water and then you go, I'm dead. They go, the bruising probably resulted in either the her jumping off a boat or jumping off a pier or wherever she jumped. And then she's hitting rocks. She's struggling. She has bruises. We don't think she's murdered case closed. But the reason why people still, and those are all reasonable assumptions. The reason why people even today think she was murdered was because she was connected to some of the most powerful people in Long Island at the time. In fact, this is horrific. When she was a kid, she was like a kid kid, right? Her parents often left her in the care of a middle-aged relative of hers. This guy named Andrew Peets. And he was molesting her. He was molesting her, this 11-year-old girl. And not only that, right? That's bad enough. He was also the mayor of Boston. Okay, so I mean, here's the thing. It's horrific if one of these things happen. But... When it's someone so powerful, how do you fight it? And to make it even worse, when he did this for years, he did this for about seven years. When he was confronted about it, when her family went to him and said, Andrew, have you been having sex with our underage daughter? He said, tell you what, I will just give you a bunch of money if all of you guys just keep quiet about this. And the parents took the money. So right there, the people who were supposed to protect Star the most, she realized that they were not doing that. They were paid off and they let their daughter silently suffer from years of this abuse. He went on to become a uh, member of the Wilson administration. His political career just kept going and going. The Woodrow Wilson administration. But her life continued to stumble downwards. She began using drugs, abusing drugs. She was doing inhalants and barbiturates. Those were her drugs of choice. She began sleeping around town, often finding herself with lawyers, doctors, 
you know, people who had money, people who were powerful, and she's kind of tomcatting around town, living life. She would sneak onto boats, these cruises that would go around the area. She would just sneak on the boat. That was something she would do and live up the life, even though she wouldn't buy a ticket. And of course, she's a beautiful young woman. People are going to be willing that if she gets caught, they're going to foot the bill. She had no shortage of lovers. But it wasn't just, some of it was her just sleeping around, but she also craved being loved back. Now, here's the thing. There is a debate in the true crime community over whether or not she killed herself. I believe that she probably killed herself because she wrote three suicide letters uh, before she died, a couple days before she died. And even a couple days before that, she ended up taking a uh, like a boat, like a local boat cruise with this doctor named Jameson Carr. And apparently the boat was called the Franconina, the Franconia. They're on this boat and she flips out because she was constantly high. She's probably extremely paranoid. She has all of this trauma in her early life. She's having all of these struggles as an adult. She's on this boat with Dr. Jameson Carr, and she starts freaking out. She starts freaking out and telling people, I just want to die. Throw me overboard. I'm going to jump. I just want to die. And it's this beautiful young woman. And people are like, what is happening? And she has to be restrained until the boat pulls back into the harbor. And he was, she was a date of this doctor on board. So she was talking about killing herself in front of multiple people. Multiple people. So much so that people were worried about her. They had to restrain her. Shortly before her body was found... Dr. Jameson Carr got three letters. One of them apologized for what she did on the cruise, what she did on the Franconia. And she's like, you know, I'm kind of sorry about that. The second one, these three letters kind of just came in quick succession, if not all on the same day. The second one, she said that she was going to kill herself. The second letter said that she was going to end her, quote, worthless, disorderly bore of an existence. I certainly have made a sordid, Futureless mess of it all. I am dead, dead sick of it. Life is horrible. I have, strangely enough, more of a feeling of peace, or whatever you call it, now that I know it will soon be over. The half hour before I die will, I imagine, be quite blissful. So her saying... I imagine the half hour before I die, I'll be more at peace than anything. That is something we actually see in people who successfully commit suicide. A lot of times you hear people go, yeah, Johnny was depressed. He was really, really depressed, but he just seemed really happy. Like before he, I don't believe he committed suicide. Like the final month before he killed himself, he was happy. He'd been depressed a lot, but he was back to old Johnny and... I don't think he killed himself. That's actually what happens. That's what we do see in people who commit suicide and also should should say attempt to commit suicide as well, is that once you've made the... This is why I didn't want people with suicidal ideation listening to this episode. If you're still listening, I love you. This episode, this ending's not for you. Um, 
generally speaking, what we've... No- and, and the reason why... I'm not just doing this to be salacious, too. The reason why I'm doing this episode is I think there are clues in... Like I said in the intro, I am not doing this to be exploitive. I do think there are clues in this letter that can help us prevent other suicides. I 100% believe that. I 100% believe that. We, have no- we know through um, talking to suicide survivors or the family members of people who have successfully killed themselves, once they have made the decision, once they have come to the firm decision that they are going to kill themselves, they are extremely happy. Because there is no more debate. There is no more worry. They're going to do it. It is weird. It, 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 is, it doesn't make sense to people who aren't suicidal. We would think, well, I would think I would be more scared leading up to the moments of it. But no, generally people who commit suicide, they can. I I remember we covered it before on this show. It's like a 7 out of 10 ratio that they can go, no, that person was going to kill themselves at some point in their life. There are markers for it. There are things that they can look through someone's life and interviewing the person. They can go, this person's at a, I always thought suicide was something you did when you were super depressed and had nowhere to go. But, and that does happen, but for most people who commit suicide, they have warning signs throughout their life for it. And for me, I, I, listen, I've been down in the dumps. There have been times when I think I can't go any further. When I had like crippling back pain, I had no electricity, I had no money coming in, I could barely pay rent. I've been homeless before, but I held on. I held on. I'm not preaching i'm not saying that oh those losers did it. i'm not saying that at all but that's because i didn't have any of those suicidal markers for me it's one more day let's give it one more day let's see how tomorrow works out because yeah these past 14 months were awful but maybe tomorrow will be better jason let's give it one more day i'm focused on that that's always been my mentality So if I knew I was going to kill myself in 24 hours, I think that would make me super aggravated. I would be scared if I finally said, you know what, I'm going to make the decision I'm going to kill myself in 24 hours. But if you've struggled with this in your entire life, and now you're 25 years old, and you've had suicidal thoughts your entire life, and you go, you know what, I'm finally doing it. A, A relaxation appears, a bliss. And the reason why I'm telling you that is because this is something that we have seen in studies. If you know someone who is struggling with suicide or suicidal thoughts, and they have struggled with it for months or years or whatever, and then all of a sudden they're in a really, really good mood and everything seems to be going their way and they have a cherry outlook, that's when you need to be afraid. Crazy stuff. I know it's I know I know it's a little heavier than the stuff we talk about on the show. We already talk about some heavy stuff, but and that was her short suicide letter. I know I'm I guys, I really apologize that the shows are going longer this season. I'm really trying to get these locked into a shorter time frame, but let's go ahead and take a look at Star's full suicide letter. That was I don't know if we're going to read all of it, but I'd like to. This was the last letter that Dr. Jameson Carr received from her. It goes, quote, It's all up with me now. This is something I am going to put through. The only thing that bothers me about it, the only thing I dread, is being outwitted 
and prevented from doing this, which is the only possible thing for me to do. If one wants to get away with murder, one has to jolly well keep one's wits about one. It's the same way with suicide. If I don't watch out, I will wake up in a psychopathic ward. But I intend to watch out and accomplish my end this time. So in the case of someone who is suicidal, it almost is a cat and mouse game. They have made the decision at this point to kill themselves. They do not want to get stopped. Nobody would. But what's funny is that we want them to stop. And we hope with the right therapy and the right support. And listen, you can be surrounded by all the right tools too and still lose someone to suicide. That can happen. It's just the way things work out sometimes. But they want to do something that they know nobody else wants them to do. So they are hiding all of those little signs at this point. The fact that she wrote this letter is shocking because he could have stopped her, but, you know, she figured he wouldn't be able to. But isn't that interesting? It would be a cat and mouse game at this point. Uh, here, continue with the letter. No ether, alanol. I looked that up. That's a barbiturate. No ether, alanol, or window jumping. This is where she's talking about how she's going to kill herself. I don't want to be maimed. I want oblivion. If there is an afterlife, it would be a dirty trick. But I'm sure 50 million priests are wrong. That is one of those things one knows. Nothing makes any difference now. I love... This is the most interesting part. Again, I had never come across this. I had never come across this. This part we're about to read is someone who is going to be dead in the next couple days, but has the freedom to do whatever they want. It's not like they're a captive. It's not like they're on death row. I remember reading this and I going, wow, I never thought of this before. And I'm sure that while this sentiment may not show up in a lot of suicide notes, I'm sure a lot of people who have struggled with suicide for years and have finally come to the decision to make it, I'm sure that this is... Not universal, but I'm sure it, it happens a lot. And it might also give you a heads up that something's coming. Let me read this. To you. I never thought about this before. She's talking about how she was going to kill herself. Nothing makes any difference now. Quote, I love to eat and can have one delicious meal with no worry of overgaining. I adore music and I'm going to hear some good music. I believe I love music more than anything. I'm going to drink slowly, keeping aware every second. Also, I'm going to enjoy my last cigarettes. I won't worry because men flirt with me in the streets. I shall encourage them. I don't care who they are. So here we have this. These are the last things she's planning on doing. And yes, if you've been watching your figure maybe possibly even having an eating disorder, but you know you're going to die in a week, you'll eat anything you want. All of it. Because you don't care about gaining a pound. And when I was talking about the story with a friend of mine, she said, and I told her about that, she said that is incredibly common with girls. It is incredibly common with young girls who kill themselves. They indulge in all of the foods they always refrain from eating 
it's a warning sign. Because the reason why they've developed that eat well, there's multiple reasons why you have an eating disorder, but one of them could be to quote unquote stay in shape, to not put on any pounds. But if you know you're gonna be dead in two days, Taco Bell, McDonald's, fudge cakes, and all of this stuff, all of all of the treats you've always loved, because who cares if you gain a two pounds or ten pounds, you're gonna be dead in forty-eight hours. We'll finish the letter off like this, and this really goes back to that whole idea of eating whatever she wants, she won't gain a pound. She says, quote, it's a great life when one has 24 hours to live. So in this last letter, she's given that timeline. It's a great life when one has 24 hours to live. I can be rude to people. I never thought about this before. I can be rude to people. I can tell them they are too fat or that I don't like their clothes. And I don't have to dread being a lonely old woman or poverty, obscurity, or boredom. Fascinating. Just in those few sentences, she has completely severed all her bonds with the social world around her. Because why would you care? If there was someone that you thought was super irritating, you're never going to see them again. You can tell them off. Walking down the street, Hey, fatso, put down that Twinkie. Everyone would be shocked. Even if the guy was exceptionally fat, everyone would be like, wow, I can't believe she said that to him. She just keeps walking on her way. She's free from all the social bonds in this moment. I can tell people what I truly think because I don't care. I'm going to die soon, and in her view, there's no afterlife. So it's a very, very interesting thing. And that's, I never thought, because the idea of the suicide note is... Sometimes you'll explain why you did it. Sometimes you're answering. A lot of people don't leave suicide notes, honestly. Um, But you'll explain why a lot of it will be goodbyes. This one is really letting us see inside the mind of someone who did end up killing herself. Again, some people say she was murdered. But she's like, I don't care. And I shouldn't care because none of it matters. I'll be dead in 24 hours and there's no afterlife and I can do whatever I want. Let me say this. I do think it's super interesting where she says, I don't want to become a lonely old woman. I don't want to be bored and I don't want to fade away into obscurity. And those seem to be, those are universal, right? People still suffer from those things. They don't want to just fade away and become another faceless resident of a rest home. Or even that, like she's 25. Maybe she's like, I don't want to be a 35 year old woman or 45 year old woman or a 50. She's looking at all that long stretch of humanity before her, that boredom, that invisibility that often accompanies women as they get older, right? Don't have to worry about it. I'll never have to worry about being bored again. Fascinating. She ends this. uh, This is where it gets much more personal. This is why she wrote the letters to Dr. Jameson Carr. She goes, quote, I don't have to dread living on without ever seeing you or hearing rumors such as the women all fall for him and he entertains charmingly. Why in hell shouldn't you? But it's more than I can cope with. This feeling I have for you So she really does love this guy. 
And again, this next part is this next. Let me just read it to you and then we'll analyze it and then we'll wrap it up. So she does love this guy. But the idea of other women loving him as well, she doesn't. And these are things probably people said to her. She's at, they're like, oh, he's such a good looking guy. Wow. He probably has his pick of any lady in this town, a doctor and good looking. And she's hearing all this stuff and processing it. Anyways, she says, um, but it's more than I can cope with this feeling I have for you. Continue. I have tried to pose as clever and intellectual, thereby to attract you, but it was not successful. And I couldn't go on writing those long, studied letters. I don't have to worry, because there are no words in which to describe this feeling I have for you. The words love, admire, worship have become meaningless. There is nothing I can do but what I am going to do. I shall never see you again. That is extraordinary. Although I can't comprehend it any more than I can comprehend the words always or time, they produce a very merciful numbness. That was the last thing that we know Star ever wrote. Her body was found on the beach shortly after composing these letters. I think the idea, we'll wrap it up like this again. I want to keep these episodes back down to like 45 minutes. They just keep getting longer and longer. What I find so interesting about this final part is when she goes, I can't pretend to be smart anymore. I've been writing these long, studied letters trying to impress him. But she, she doesn't have to do it anymore. It was such a struggle for her to do it. I've tried to pose as clever and intellectual to attract you, but it was not successful. And I wonder if she was more of a hanger-on at this point. She loved him. I mean, obviously, she'd freak out on the boat. That's going to end uh, a lot of dates. But the reason why, I mean, I, I th- that is not unusual, right, for people to feel like they are not being themselves, that people have to put up a front um, we all have different faces, right? I wouldn't say we all do, but you know, you act different at work than you would act different at a party. A lot of times it's not that different. It could just be the language you use. It doesn't mean you're like a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but we all struggle with that. We struggle with loneliness. You can find the most popular person on the football team at any local high school and they'll talk about how they're lonely sometimes. It's just the human condition. It's just the way we are. We're lonely in different ways, but we're all lonely. And she had a rough batch in life, right? She had a really horrific childhood. Her parents betrayed her. She didn't have a great adulthood. She was addicted to drugs. But in essence, she still suffered from the same things that we all suffer from. Wanting to be loved. We love so much that we want our love returned. And a lot of people, they don't feel that love being returned to them. Which sucks. It's a horrible feeling. And I think to Star specifically, she felt like even if Dr. Jameson Carr did love her back, Star knew, or Star would know in the back of her mind that, Was he loving her or was he loving the carefully crafted version that she had presented to him of this sophisticated woman? 
Or would he actually love Star for who she was? Fascinating. I mean, again, like, it's a bit of a downer, right? It's probably... <laughs> we've talked about some pretty rough topics on this show. But this might be the uh, most grim. Because we know the outcome. I thought this was a good, interesting pairing to put Buckminster and Star together. Um, mostly because if you're listening to all the episodes of Dead Rap Radio, you can just skip this entire one and not have to hear these two stories. You have a, Both of them involve suicide. But the first one, you have a guy getting stopped at the last moment. And again, like I said on yesterday's episode, why does that happen to some people and not others? Why didn't that happen to Star? Why, before she leapt in the water, did not an interdimensional force interfere in her life? To be honest, we don't know why. And it's possible that sometimes these forces may intervene and the person goes, nah, I'm good. And then they kill themselves anyways. The world is a mystery. Um, sometimes it's a exuberant mystery full of wonder and imagination. And sometimes it's a dark tale of loneliness and loss. But I hope that for the most part, it's the first one. I hope for the most part, it's the Goonie-esque adventure that can get dark a little bit. But for the most part, there's always hope. You just got to get out of that tunnel and watch that ship sail away with your new friend, the deformed man known as Sloth. I hope that's the majority of our experiences on planet Earth. But the darkness does intrude from time to time. It does. And I'm going to wrap it up like this. Take this letter to heart in the sense that I hope I've given you some knowledge today that will help you look for those clues. Because I could have just read you off a list of these are the things to look for for someone who is thinking about committing suicide. It would have been five minutes. But I think by looking at the, the final words of a woman who did kill herself, we'll remember it more. Like, I've, even though I didn't remember her name, I've been trying to find this letter for years. I didn't forget a detail in the letter itself. Those words are haunting, but hopefully they will help us in the future save people from the same fate that befell young Star Faithful. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. TikTok is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rapper Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great day.